Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. Dr. David Stewart completed oncology training at MD Anderson Hospital in Houston in 1978. He practiced oncology at MD Anderson from 78 to 80, and again from 2003 to 2011. And he practiced in Ottawa, Canada from 1980 to 2003 and 2011 to right now. He recently published the book, A Short Primer on Why Cancer Still Sucks, intended for patients and available from Amazon Books. Dr. Stewart, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. So I'm excited. I love talking to physicians because I get to ask a little bit of different questions. So can you take us back? Did you always want to be a doctor? Let's start there. Uh, so actually, uh, uh, the, the premonition came when I was about grade four. My teacher told me my, my handwriting was so bad that I was destined to become a doctor. Really? <laughs> so, <laughs> that's, right. that's right. That's right. So, so no, medicine was just one of many different things that I had uh, contemplated um, uh, when I was younger. But, uh, uh, but ultimately, it was what uh, was most interesting and most fascinating and, and um, uh, promised to be the most rewarding from the ability to, to help other people. Why did you decide to go into oncology? It's not easy. Uh, so the, the reason for that, uh, many of us are the product, product of our mentors. So when I was at, in final year medical school at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, um, we had 10-week rotation in internal medicine. Uh, and my, the, so mine was in hematology, oncology. And the two, my two mentors there, Peter Galbraith and uh, David Ginsburg, were both phenomenal human beings, phenomenal teachers. And they really um, taught me uh, just how, um, uh, how, to, uh, how, how important it was to practice this and how much help you could be to people and how much people needed help and really appreciated it. Uh, so it was that rotation back in medical school that really got me interested. And then when I was doing my internal medicine training at the Royal Victoria Hospital in Montreal, uh, again, my favorite rotation there was also hematology uh, and oncology. So, so as early experiences, that's what, um, that's what um, got me convinced that that was what I wanted to do. So you begin your career at MD Anderson, probably one of the best known cancer centers in the U.S. What was that like for you? Uh, so it was phenomenal. I, I mean, uh, the just the uh, the entire approach to medicine was different from uh, what I was used to, where I did my internal medicine training, and it was world experts um, uh, that uh, going into a, a meeting uh, with thirty staff people from the Department of Developmental Therapeutics, uh, all world renowned all sitting around and yelling at each other that the other one did not know the first thing about uh, medicine or oncology and uh, how they had it all wrong. Uh, so incredibly stimulating. And uh, and particularly under the leadership of Dr. Emil J. Freireich, who was the head of the department at the time. Uh, so I've always said that he was uh, one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. And uh, and uh, just the, the excitement that we could make things better, that we could do things um, that had not been done before uh, to, uh, to make a difference. Do you feel like medical school, postdoc, 
residency, do you feel like that prepared you to be an oncologist? Uh, so it itself did not. In fact, there was very little in medical school that did. Uh, that 10-week rotation I did on uh, hematology oncology as a fourth-year medical student with Drs. Galbraith and Ginsburg, uh, that was uh, very important uh, in uh, showing me what to, how to approach it and also just teaching me the, the appreciation that patients have when uh, they're desperate, they're, they're, they're in deep trouble, and uh, just the appreciation that you're, that, uh, you're going to try to help them. And you're in oncology. I'm assuming, I shouldn't assume, but I'm assuming that you've had to have some tough conversations with patients. Uh, yeah, so that those happen all the time. Uh, but uh, the thing that I always get the most thanks for from patients are being very candid and trying to tell it the way it is, tell it in a way that they can understand. Uh, what patients tell me all the time is that um, uh, bad news is not as hard as no news or uncertainty or, or things being um, people uh, gilding the, uh, the lily or trying to make it sound better than it really is. Uh, if people know exactly where they are, uh, then they can make the decisions that they need to to move on with things. Uh, and uh, and so people, one patient after the other has told me how incredibly important that is uh, for me to be able to tell them exactly why things are the way they are and uh, and what the options are as far as what we do about it. Wow. Did school or any particular mentor prepare you to have those hard conversations, to have that death conversation? Uh, so, so again, actually, the, the early experiences with Dr. Uh, Dr. Galbraith and Dr. Ginsburg um, did, uh, as well as the uh, the time at MD Anderson and watching how people there did it, uh, and also then just uh, just experience as an oncologist, and um, and uh, the uh, the more plain I put things, the more brutally frank I was with, with patients, the more the more thankful they were uh, for me for doing that. And and so it was just that, that experience uh, that uh, patients telling me that this was really what they needed, this was really what they wanted. It might not be what they wanted to hear, uh, but that's uh, but that was a conversation that they wanted to have. Yeah, I always find it fascinating, and I know there are multiple studies on this now. How often the treatment recommendations doctors make, especially for serious diseases like cancer, they would not do themselves because they just know the odds, know the side effects. And I'm talking more specifically about advanced cancer. So what are your thoughts on, on that? Uh, so I always remember a radiation oncologist I worked with many years ago, uh, and he, he said that uh, I would die with far more scars in my body than he would, <laughs> just because, <laughs> just because I, I, I saw enough patients that against, against all odds beat things to wow. know that it could happen. Uh, so I also saw a whole bunch of people that uh, tried things that did not work. So it's important. And I, what I tell all my patients is that it's very important to be prepared for the fact that things could go badly very rapidly, no matter what we do. Uh, or there's always a possibility that um, uh, that uh, things could go much better than expected. Uh, so actually, uh, in the book, I talk about one of my classmates from medical school who was a, an obstetrician. And at one of our class reunions, um, he was saying, it must be so hard to be a, a, a medical oncologist, uh, seeing all those patients suffering and dying, uh, and uh, no matter what you do, and I, I point out, yeah, but they're all in trouble, uh, and we can make it better for them. And every once in a while, things turn out spectacularly better than what we uh, than what we expected. And he said, "Ah, finally, I understand. Uh, as a as an obstetrician, if I get one bad result a year, it ruins my year. You, as an oncologist, if you get one good result a year, it makes your year." That's such a great way to put it. That's so fascinating. 
Wow. Is there a particular patient who has really touched your heart or changed the way that you practice? Uh, no, there's just just many, many of them that, um, uh, again, seeing people uh, that uh, just the the uh, the bravery, the courage uh, that uh, that people display, uh, the humanity, the, just uh, uh, all of it, just so many patients that um, uh, that have been so important to me that um, um, that um, uh, just they've accepted things the way they are and um, and uh, but have been very, very uh, brave and courageous about it. I love this stuff. I really do. This is great. So you started in 1978 and now today it's 2022. That's a long time. That's a long yep. career. So can you tell us a little bit about the changes that you have seen in oncology? Uh, yeah, so it's things are markedly different now than they were back then, and actually, the I mentioned that uh, Dr. Emil J. Freirich was one of my early mentors, um, and he had Freirich's laws. One of Freirich's laws was that the only people who come close to predicting the future are the science fiction writers, and they always underpredict rather than overpredicting. And when he told us that, none of us thought we'd be walking around with phones in our pocket or that we would no longer need a map because a computer in a car would be talking to a satellite. So if you can imagine it, it can be potentially can, can be done. Uh, and so that just all the things that all, all the so targeted therapies were not um, uh, something we did not have back then. Back then, the only drug that we had for nausea and vomiting was uh, uh, was uh, composine uh, or um, uh, actually. So actually, at that point, if we walk past somebody's um, room and the door was closed, it had a sign on the door saying Californium. It meant the patient was inside smoking up um, because marijuana was one of the only things that would work against the nausea. It was strictly illegal, but uh, it was one of the few things that would work. And then all that changed radically in 1991 with Undacitron. Uh, and then all the other uh, things in supportive care that have helped, like Plurax catheters for malignant pleural effusions, uh, the uh, the bisphosphonates for hypercalcemia, um, and uh, just things like that that have radically changed how we can uh, how we can do things. At the same time, that the treatments have just gotten better and better. Uh, so as I point out in the book, the treatments still are not nearly as good as what we need them to be, but they keep on getting better. And so I can say with confidence that five or ten years from now, things will be a lot better than they are now. And I can say that because things are a lot better now than they were five or ten years uh, years ago. Uh, just the uh, I mean. Uh, the the median life expectancy for a non metastatic non small cell lung cancer uh, without chemotherapy is um, is about four or four and a half months, uh, and with the early chemotherapy drugs, uh, they brought it up to about eight months. Uh, and now, if we've got a patient that has um, a, a high PDL one expression with chemotherapy and immunotherapy together, uh, the median is two years. If they've got NGFR mutation uh, with osimertinib, it's uh, three years. Um, and so these sound like small gains, uh, but they're really huge for the individual people because if the median is three years with osimertinib, that actually means that about 25% of patients uh, will still be alive at six years, and about 12% will still be alive at nine years, and about 6% will still be alive at 12 years. Uh, so that, again, not nearly as high a proportion as we need to see, uh, but for individual patients, uh, it is spectacularly important, and it, uh, it gives hope, uh, and it's realistic hope, because this is what we know that we can do in at least some patients. On that note, do you do a lot of clinical trial oversight management? Are you a PI on any trials? 
yeah, so I, I used to do a lot more than I do now. And the reason I, I stepped back was to give the younger people the opportunity to do that. So I'll give them whatever advice I can, uh, and I'll try to help them succeed to the extent that uh, I can. So uh, I used to do uh, personally manage a lot of um, a lot of clinical trials, uh, but um, uh, again, trying to give the younger people more of an opportunity. So I still do some when they say not enough people around to run the next trial. Will, will I please do it? And I say absolutely. I'll be I'd be happy to do it. Uh, but also that experience, uh, because I've done so many uh, over the past um, uh, 45 years or so, uh, that's what has shown me firsthand how, uh, how clinical uh, research regulation has changed. And all the regulations that uh, new regulations are there for a reason, a very important reason, uh, but, th but they have slowed things down way too much. And we need to really tackle this, as I discuss in chapters 11 and 12 in the, in the book. Uh, that, uh, Would that you we give really us an need. example of that, like how the the regulations have slowed things down so, uh, so people just, understand yeah so just the um uh for example the the documentation that's required now uh so back in the early days i could write a clinical trial myself i could write the protocol myself i could get through the irb myself i could do all the data management myself wow. i could write it up and publish it myself that all changed in the late 1990s or, or 2000 with um, uh, with uh, harmonization of um, of uh, research results, uh, where if the whole idea was that if um, everybody followed the same rules, then uh, clinical research data that was generated in Canada could also be used in the United States or Britain or any place else uh, to get the drug approved. But that suddenly made things much more complicated and uh, radically increased the amount of, amount of data that you had to uh, collect and the amount of oversight. And so it meant that you could no longer do uh, clinical trials for free, uh, that then you needed funding. And you could write a grant application that would take you two years and you'd have a 5% chance of getting it funded. Uh, or the other thing, you could go to the drug companies. So it meant that uh, that uh, the pharmaceutical companies were, were running the show because they were the only ones that had their pockets deep, deep enough uh, to do the, uh, the, uh, the, to fund the clinical trials. And then the other things uh, like um, the, um, uh, the uh, CROs, clinical research organizations. Uh, so companies started using them. And the more that uh, work the CRO does, the more it makes. So suddenly the amount of work that you had to do uh, went up and up and up. And you'd uh, get one query after another from them. And uh, they say, uh, well, this is um, life-threatening. Uh, this is uh, essential for safety. Did the patient's fatigue get better on day five or day six after the chemotherapy? You have to tell us this. And you have to fill out this form and one form after another like this to tell us because this is, this is very important to patients safety, where the patient didn't, make, didn't, didn't matter to them whether it got better in day five or day six. Their problem was that they were facing uh, something that was going to kill them in a couple of months unless we could give them on a, a, a new treatment that was going to be beneficial. Uh, so those are uh, just uh, a few things. Uh, the IRB, the time it takes to get through uh, an IRB. Uh, and I actually served as an alternate in one of the IRBs uh, when I was down at MD Anderson. So the trials would come through. And uh, and so it would be approved, except there'd be one word uh, in the consent form that had to be changed. So it would be sent back to the, uh, to the, uh, the PI, and they would have to submit it the next month. Then another word would have to be changed, and then another, and then another. And so all these things, while patients were dying because it could not get access to these therapies uh, where people were trying to make things sound perfect. And I mean, and, and I, I use the example in the book, uh, it's like you, you have a, a, a freeway, a highway, a clinical research highway, and, uh, and you end up with a thousand speed bumps each of them small, uh, but uh, with a thousand speed bumps, uh, the traffic slows to a crawl. Yeah. And so people tell me, uh, ask me, what's the one speed bump you'd want to take out? 
doesn't make any difference if you take out the one speed bump. There's 999 more that will slow things down. So we have to really uh, tackle the entire thing. Wow. Uh, and we know it can and we know it can be done uh, because we did it with AIDS and we did it with COVID. Uh, so that with uh, with COVID, uh, before uh, COVID, the fastest vaccine that was ever developed was uh, was four years from discovery uh, to uh, approval for the mumps vaccine. But most of the vaccines took 10 or 12 years to uh, to develop. And then with COVID, everybody just decided this was important. And it came down to one year. Uh, and the same thing with um, with AIDS, uh, because we had a whole bunch of angry people demanding that thing happen, things happen faster. They happen faster. So this proves to us we can do it and we can do it safely. Uh, we just have a need to change priorities. And uh, and uh, don't get me wrong, all those speed bumps are there for a very good reason. There was, uh, there were major problems that um, have occurred, but we need to, it, it cannot just be about uh, preventing that problem from happening again. It has to be about preventing it from happening again uh, at the same time that we permit high speed. And the analogy you use is the Autobahn in Germany. I, I don't know whether you've ever driven on the Autobahn, um, but it has um, uh, large sections with unlimited speed limits. So uh, when my wife and I were there, we were driving along in our rented Audi going 100 miles an hour and things were passing us at 140 miles oh an hour. Oh my God. <laughs> but, but it felt perfectly safe because they had the right regulations to make it safe. Um, and um, and they had good drivers, good cars, good highways, and good regulations. So they had smart regulation. So that's what we need. We need smart regulation to permit rapid progress uh, for lethal diseases. It doesn't make uh, any difference if you make things, uh, the, the protocol is very, 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 very safe. Uh, if people are dying because they cannot get access because uh, you've, made it to, you've made it too safe. I have so many questions. <laughs> I'm so excited. I love getting into this stuff. Well, first of all, your highway with the speed bump analogy reminds me of a famous quote attributed to Muhammad Ali. And and I love it because that's, that's what I feel all the time. It's not the mountain in front of you. It's the pebble in your shoe. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And we got thousands of those pebbles and we got to we gotta do something about them. So with COVID and even with AIDS, but We'll talk about COVID because it is so recent. How did those speed bumps get eliminated? Like what what happened to make to speed up the process? It was very, very, very simple. The priorities changed. Uh, it was just everybody decided that this is something important. Uh, so the, the White House um, uh, moonshot um, uh, undertaking is an example of just one small part that we have to do to, to fix this. Uh, but in like in the book, um, I, I give so many, many different examples of speed bumps and what we need to do to eliminate them. But first and foremost, we have to make the, the decision uh, that the number one priority is, uh, is progress. It has to be progress-centered regulation to make everything happen uh, rapidly. Uh, and uh, yeah, we need all the things to make sure that uh, uh, that uh, that um, patients get proper informed consent and uh, and uh, and all those types of things. Uh, but it has to be the priority has to change. So on that note, I'm going to dig a little deeper. Just your thoughts about this, and I'm getting like super nerded out here. But when you have a clinical trial, especially a phase three, right? You're you're for people who don't know. You are testing a new therapy with the standard of care or placebo or any combination of things. And what can often happen is the, tr the trial is declared inferior um, because it didn't meet its end result, um, whether that is overall survival or what they call progression-free survival, all those fun little acronyms. However, 
I have seen many trials that were declared inferior, that were declared, you know, bad, negative, whatever, yet it didn't meet the primary endpoint, which is usually overall survival. However, the patients, the participants in the clinical trial had far fewer side effects and, you know, and did much better on that particular therapy, even if it did not increase their lifespan, at least while going through the disease, they had a more positive experience. And so I get a little frustrated when I see trials like that, where I can see that the patients were actually reporting that they were doing better. And so what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so I, so I address that to a certain extent in the book, and also a paper a paper we published about nine years ago called "Fools Gold Lost Treasures and the Randomized Clinical Trial," uh, showing all the ways you could mess things up with a randomized clinical trial uh, and get the wrong answer. Wow! Uh, so so that um, uh, just as an example, uh, the um, in a randomized clinical trial, if you're relying on survival. If you permit crossover, then you're automatically disadvantaging the new drug because uh, if it works as good second line as it did front line and you permit people to cross over, uh, then you will decrease the, the survival gain just because of that. Um, and if you do not permit crossover, that's unethical because you've already know that the, the, the drug can cause uh, marked tumor shrinkage and make people feel better. And you say, but uh, you're not permitted crossover. Uh, that's, um, uh, that, is, uh, that, that is just, from my perspective, unethical. So that's why uh, I don't think that overall survival is a very good clinical trial endpoint. Uh, it's okay if you, if you achieve it. But I think that uh, response and progression-free survival are much better because to get a response, you need to have uh, real anti-tumor activity. You need to get tumor regression. Now, some of those responses are very short. So a drug that gives you a short response probably is not worth very much. Uh, but I very much like the approach that the uh, FDA takes with breakthrough drug designation. So taking a, a drug that um, will lead to tumor regression in people that you do not expect it and approving drugs on that, uh, on that basis. Uh, so and that works well for single agents. Uh, if you if you're putting it in combination something with something, then you're more likely to need a randomized clinical trial to make sure it's a new drug that's doing it and not just the older drug and just some natural variability. Uh, but even progression-free survival for a single agent, I think, is better than overall survival, uh, because again, uh, that's showing you that uh, that the um, the drug uh, prevents progression, and often it has to lead to tumor uh, shrinkage for it to be able to do that. But the pro the problem in the past with progression-free survival was the uh, the um, uh, the goalposts were set um, to uh, the bar was set too low, and so they, then they just looked at um, a p value. So if the p value was 0.05, they said mm -hmm. it's statistically significant, uh, but the gain might only be a couple of weeks and still be statistically significant. That's not worth it. So we published another paper that uh, that uh, just looked at uh, that if it's statistically significant progression-free survival, and it exceeds a uh, a minimum uh, goal. So example, for example, a, a trial that has a progression-free survival of 1.5 months and uh, is statistically significant, there's going to be a greater than 80% probability that the overall survival increased by two months or more. If the, uh, if the um, progression-free survival increased by four months, then there's greater than 80% probability that the overall survival will have, will have um, increased by five months or more. 
And uh, so these were analyses that we did uh, in, uh, in studies that did not have any crossover, uh, just to see what happens, uh, what that relationship is in the absence of crossover. So what that told us is if you, if you do progression-free survival right, uh, then, if you, um, then you can actually make it a very useful uh, endpoint. And also, we, we did something else. And uh, so instead of using medians, uh, we actually calculated half-lives. So that where we did um, uh, nonlinear regression analysis of progression-free survival, uh, so calculate half-life. Because the problem with the medium is the curves might just zig and zag a bit. So the curves come together right at the midpoint, then the uh, median gain is small. If they go apart right at the, at the midpoint, they look larger. Uh, but the, the calculating the half-life, it, um, it, um, uh, it evens it out, uh, it averages it out. And there's a very strong correlation between medians and half-lives, but uh, looking at half-lives, um, uh, uh, it gives you a, a much better indication of what's really happening than if you uh, look at medians. Thank you for digging into the details with me. I, I love it. And I want to ask about a problem that I see all the time that doesn't seem to be getting that much better, and I'm really passionate about it. And since you have worked in both the U.S. and the States, I'm really I'm sorry. Since you have worked in both the States and Canada, I'm really curious if there's a difference. So most patients who don't have any kind of medical background may not even know what a clinical trial is, or even if they do, they don't know, you know how they would get on one. And I have lost track of the number of patients who have been told to go home and get their affairs in order, and they were completely eligible for a trial, and there was a trial near them, and they were ready to try more, they felt good enough, and it was never brought up to them. And I don't think you can expect community oncologists to keep track of every trial going on at any given time. There's just so many. And clinicaltrials.gov, which is a directory of clinical trial listings for people who don't know, is not very user-friendly. It's very difficult, even though they promise it's getting better. So what is your experience with that, with with patients, their understanding of clinical trials, and their ability to get on one. Uh, so it's very difficult for patients to get on one. So that the survey suggests that 70% uh, uh, or more of uh, patients with advanced cancers would be willing to go on a clinical trial, and yet uh, fewer than only about 5% ever make it onto a clinical trial. Uh, a huge problem is just the eligibility criteria. So that's, again, something that we uh, addressed in the book that um, they don't make sense, uh, like excluding patients with brain metastases uh, from uh, uh, clinical trials with lung cancer is absolutely makes no sense at all. And in the chapter on uh, oncology myths and legends, uh, I address the uh, the myth about the importance of the, of the blood-brain barrier in uh, in the treatment of metastatic cancers. Uh, it's the blood-brain barrier is real in a healthy person, but it's broken down in a patient with a brain tumor, and that's why they show up on on scans with the with contrast. And uh, the drug the concentrations of drugs in those tumors are every bit as high as they are in, in other parts of the body, and and the response rates are about the same. Uh, and so I address how that myth arose and all the things that are done to perpetrate it. But things like that, that uh, restrict access of patients to, to trials are a big problem. Uh, the other problem that we've got 
is that um, uh, we'll spend months and months getting a clinical trial open. It'll be open for a few weeks and then it closes because it's metacruel. Uh, and so it's, uh, so it, um, it's very, very difficult. Uh, or also uh, patients that, um, uh, that may be a uh, clinical trial that uh, is only open to patients with, say, uh, a ROS1 mutation. And so that's 1% of lung cancers. So we'll work for months to get the trial open, and then we'll never see a patient in the year that the trial is open. Uh, so that one of the things that uh, we uh, propose in the, uh, in the book is just-in-time tri trial activation. Uh, so if you've got a patient with a malignancy, uh, with a rare uh, mutation, and there's a trial out there that uh, addresses that, uh, that you just go online and get it open immediately at your center, instead of going through the months and months and months of, um, of trial activation that is currently um, uh, required. Uh, so that um, uh, people have said, well, you just have the patient move to the center where the, where the uh, trial is open. But uh, you're asking people in the, in the last few months of their lives to uh, uproot and move somewhere else to go on something that may not help them. And we just need to address this to make the trials much more accessible to everybody that, um, that uh, wants to get on them. Do the clinical trials, do the clinical trial issues exist in Canada the way they do here in the U.S.? Yeah, it's, it's, it's international. Okay. Uh, so back when I, uh, when I mentioned about the, in uh, about uh, 2000, uh, the year 2000, late 1990s, 2000, where they harmonized things, uh, they thereby made it equally difficult everywhere. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> So there, so there unintended no consequence. <laughs> unintended consequences. So it's made to improve things, but it had uh, unintended, unintended major negative consequences. But that also means that if we figure that if we decide to prioritize this and and figure that this is something that really get, needs to get fixed, uh, that we can fix it everywhere uh, as well. We just have to uh, to agree that this is a priority uh, that really needs to be addressed. I totally hear you also on the eligibility and ineligibility criteria that drives me crazy, you know, and the FDA made the mistake of asking me to come speak about that. <laughs> and I pulled up trials randomly yeah. and, and, you know, and I had a you know, couple of slides to share. I couldn't even get the ineligibility criteria onto a single slide. It yep. was 30 bullet points. Yep. Absolutely. And, and, and the FDA realizes that. So the, the FDA is not the enemy here. So Richard pa Rick Pazder is a, a great uh, person. He, he fully understands uh, the, um, uh, what's going on. He wants to help fix it. Uh, but he needs everybody together to, uh, to agree that this needs to be done. So I've taken part in, in uh, meetings where uh, people from the FDA and NCI and, uh, and ASCO and, uh, and uh, patient advocacy groups and, uh, and industry get together to discuss this. And uh, so uh, my experience suggests that industry are the ones that uh, don't want the clinical trials eligibility criteria to be looser uh, because then uh, they might have a few bad patients in the state make their drug look bad. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but, um, but this is something that we desperately need uh, to, uh, to make the eligibility criteria easier. Also, people with, with other malignancies in the past being uh, forbidden from going on, on, uh, uh, on clinical trials. The number of times in the last uh, 40 years where I've had a patient that I didn't know whether it was or lung cancer or something else that was um, getting worse, uh, it may have been one or two patients, and that's it. Uh, so usually you can tell clinically whether it's uh, uh, the, the the drug that the, the malignancy you want to to study or something else that's getting worse. Uh, so that's crazy. Um, and uh, performance status with with new drugs like uh, targeted therapies and immunotherapy being much better tolerated. No reason that a performance status two patients should not be able to go 
on the clinical trial, etc., etc., etc. So, so the uh, the uh, so there's the, we should be able to get far more than five percent of patients on 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 clinical trials. Oh, I I totally agree. So I want to switch gears and ask you about mentorship because you are in that stage of your career where I'm sure you are mentoring um, a lot of you know new physicians. What is that yeah. like for you? Uh, yeah, so it's uh, it's absolutely great. So that uh, all our trainees, I give them a free copy uh, of uh, of my book uh, uh, to because it's all the uh, the many of the things that uh, I've learned over the course of uh, many many years. Uh, to um, uh, so there are some things I can't get them to listen to. So uh, so again, <laughs> like what? Well, getting any oncologist to listen to the fact that the blood-brain barrier is important, not important, uh, that's tough because it's so completely ingrained into oncologists that it's important. Explain uh, to but, people what that means. Okay, so the blood-brain barrier is something that um, it keeps toxins out of the brain. And it's very, very, very important to uh, to make sure that uh, uh, that your next meal doesn't kill you by poisoning your brain. Um, but um, but when tumors spread to the brain, uh, the um, uh, the blood brain barrier becomes leaky there, uh, so that uh, that's why when you have a scan, uh, the contrast eye gets in and it lights up. That's why you have edema or swelling around the tumor. Um, but um, but the assumption is uh, that uh, drugs that do not get into the normal brain will not get into tumors in the brain uh, either. Uh, but that's just not correct. We've uh, we've done studies, uh, 15 different drugs I, I looked at where back in the, my early days. I gave consenting patients low non-toxic doses of chemotherapy uh, before they went to surgery for removal, to remove a brain tumor. I went to the operating room and the surgeon would give me a small piece of the tumor. I'd take it back to the lab and measure the concentration of the drug. And what we found is that uh, all the drugs reach high concentrations uh, in tumors in the brain, even though they only reach low concentrations in the normal ner nervous system. Uh, and also the response rates uh, are about the same uh, in tumors in the brain as there are other, other places, even though people say that they are not, but they, they actually are. Uh, it's also been pointed out that to people with brain metastases don't do as well as patients with metastases in other sites. But in fact, if you look at it carefully, they do exactly the same as people with liver metastases or bone metastases or subcutaneous metastases or adrenal metastases. The one group that does better are patients with what's called M1A disease, which is metastatic disease only within the lung and uh, and uh, the thorax, so the, the lining of the lung called the pleura or the pericardium. Those patients do better. And that's because of the fact that um, the metastases to those sites tend to be monoclonal. They come, tend to come from a single site in the primary tumor, whereas if you spread beyond the, um, the thorax, they tend to be polyclonal. So a uh, number of different uh, clones from the primary tumor that are spreading there. And so that, but people always compare patients with brain metastases to patients without brain metastases, but the without brain metastases group um, includes a whole bunch of people that have only intrathoracic disease, and that's why they look better. But people say, well, say, look, the, this, is, this proves that blood brain barrier is important, but no, it doesn't because uh, they because uh, they they don't argue that there's a blood liver barrier uh, when the liver metastases grow or a blood bone barrier when the bone metastases grow, uh, but they've got this built-in uh, excuse for the brain that it's a blood brain barrier, but uh, but it's not. Uh, but this is very very bad because it uh, it means that uh, uh, that those patients get excluded from trials so that slows down clinical trials. It means that you're denying patients the opportunity to take to receive a therapy that uh, could help them. Uh, and the other, the very bad thing is that some of the uh, studies say that if you give radiation to the brain metastases and then wait a month and they're stable, then you can get the patient onto clinical trial. 
The problem with that is that uh, for if you've got metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, then every week that passes that you don't start chemotherapy, 4% of remaining patients die. And many of the others uh, will uh, deteriorate to the point that they're too sick to get anything. So that uh, giving them the, the, the one or two weeks of cranial radiation and then waiting four weeks, uh, that just um, that just mean, that that, um, uh, that just um, destines a whole bunch of people to never getting treated at all because they just crash and burn too fast. When you're giving radiation to small brain metastases that just do not have to be treated by cranial radiation. If the systemic therapy is going to work against the rest of the tumor, it will work against those small brain metastases as well. Uh, so, so it's uh, very bad that uh, that uh, that we uh, that we do this. It's bad for patient care uh, that uh, that uh, that we do this. Wow! Thank you for explaining that. That's so interesting. And you brought up uh, non-small cell metastatic lung cancer, and I'm thinking of a patient and his wife. They were told to go home, get his affairs in order. He had brain metastases. He felt good, and through through a case study that we did with them, his wife was able to find him a clinical trial. You know, after being told, you know, go home, it's over, there's nothing left. And, but it, it the onus was really on her, you know? And, yeah. and, and so th that can be so challenging. And and so I've got a bunch of patients that uh, the therapies the therapies don't work. I've got a bunch of patients that they do work. So as far as telling patients to get uh, their affairs in order, so uh, all my new patients, I tell them that um, uh, their cancer is not curable, uh, that they have to be prepared for the fact that things might go badly very quickly, and they they should get their will written and their power of attorney so that if things uh, go badly quickly, they don't have to worry about it again because it's done. But also be prepared for the fact that they may be alive and well four or five years from now, uh, and so they have to be prepared for both of those possibilities. And so it's uh, just important to, uh, to, uh, to be uh, prepared for either and then just take it as it comes and then we just give it our best shot, see what we can do for the patient. Yeah, I do feel like all adults, whether you have children or not, you need to have a will and you need to yep. have an advanced directive, which is also called a living will, which is 100% about your healthcare choices. So you need to have that stuff yep. done and it's not super difficult to do. Yep. Okay. What is one thing you wish you had known at the very, very beginning of medical school? At the very first of medical school. <laughs> um, so I can't think of, um, of uh, anything uh, because it's been everything I ever wanted to be and more. So, so. Oh, wow. Not many people can say that. Really? That's amazing. Wow. So people ask me when I'm going to retire. I tell them I'm on the Freedom 85 plan. So, so <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> it means I'll keep on going until I'm 85 <laughs> and if I can. So, so I love what I'm doing. And, um, and uh, so it's just uh, uh, every day, it's, uh, there's always lots and lots of frustrations at work every day. Uh, lots of things that get me mad. Okay? So, uh, but at the same time, it's just uh, incredibly rewarding. So, uh, so uh, the um, uh, so uh, I can't think of anything I'd rather do. Oh God, that's amazing! Okay, you're so inspirational. If you could only do one thing to improve healthcare, and I'm going to have you do both: yeah. one thing to improve healthcare in the U.S. and one thing to improve healthcare in Canada. What would it be, and why? Okay, in the U.S., do not ca copy the Canadian system. In Canada, do, do not copy the American system. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we got to do why? Why? <laughs> 
so, so as I point out in chapter 14 of the book, uh, as far as uh, which healthcare system is better, uh, I love them both and I hate them both. Uh, so I point out that, um, that uh, Canadians only get what they pay for and Americans pay far too much for what they get. Uh, that uh, the uh, U.S. healthcare system uh, fails the young people, uh, minorities, and the poor. The Canadian system uh, fails older people. Uh, so that um, so that um, it's the reason that um, the American system that um, uh, that uh, United States ranks 49th in the world in average life expectancy, just ahead of Albania, is because of the number of young people that die that didn't have to die, but because they did not have um, access to uh, to uh, uh, good healthcare. So in the United States, uh, you have to get um, uh, healthcare to young people uh, and um, make sure that they all uh, are, are insured. Uh, but in the Canadian system, it's great because everybody's insured. The problem is that, that like in the United States, the, uh, the costs are controlled by, uh, by um, the insurance companies um, that are putting all sorts of impediments up. And uh, so every doctor's office has all sorts of people working in it that have to interact with the insurance company to get prior approvals and, uh, and uh, make sure it can be done. And that means that uh, the uh, administrative costs in the U.S. system are five times higher than in the Canadian system. So it's one of the few examples of where a government-run system is more efficient than a private um, a system uh, just because of the, uh, the crazy things that happen with, uh, uh, with the uh, uh, U.S. Uh, insurance, uh, so that uh, uh, the United States does need a universal access, uh, universal system for younger people. Uh, so once people in the United States uh, hit age 65, the system is gold-plated. Uh, it's a fantastic system, uh, but uh, younger people, it's uh, very, very, very suboptimal. Uh, in the Canadian system, things instead of a uh, of all these insurance companies that um, that uh, you have to phone that you have to call, uh, instead it's uh, just different choke points. So just creating shortage of things uh, that uh, then they slow down, create bottlenecks, uh, and that's very effective at controlling utilization. But it also means that it takes too long to get things moving uh, in uh, in patients. Uh, so that if somebody's got a serious illness, it just takes a bit too long to uh, to do things. So uh, for younger people, the Canadian system does far better than the American system. Uh, for older people with cancer, the American system actually does, uh, does better than, than the Canadian system uh, for those Americans that uh, have a Medicare because they're over age 65. Uh, so that uh, in the Canadian system, uh, we need to um, uh, to uh, uh, get rid of the bottlenecks so that uh, people can move uh, through much, uh, much faster. Uh, we need to do a much better job of, um, of getting drugs funded by the public payer uh, once they're approved by Health Canada. Uh, in the U.S. system, uh, you need to do uh, things to bring down costs and to give access to, uh, to younger people. I'm thinking of two women in Canada, two very different cancers, one younger, one older. And the younger woman who I believe was diagnosed in her early thirties with breast cancer. I mean, she was quite young. She said how grateful she was to live in Canada because she had a cancer that everyone under understood. It was caught fairly early. The steps were easy to understand. There, there was just no deviation from the standard of care for her. And the standard of care worked quite well for her because it was caught early. And then I'm thinking of an older woman who was diagnosed with rectal cancer, and she had a much different journey. Um, and the one drug that she needed to get on was not approved in her province of Nova Scotia. And I didn't know about this until I spoke with her that it was approved everywhere else, but it wasn't approved where she lived. And 
she battled the government, essentially what and here would be the state government to change the law, to get things done. Remarkable advocate. Absolutely. But it was all too late for her. And so she ended up with really substandard care and is now going to die from rectal cancer. Maybe not tomorrow or next week, but she knows like that's the path ahead of her. And it's also just been really, really rough. And so it completely illustrates what you just said. Yeah, so so the uh, the Canadian healthcare system is great when it funds what you need, uh, but it does take. Uh, so the the um, the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, uh, 30, the thirty eight richest countries in the world, uh, so that um, before provinces in Canada will fund public give fu public funding for the drugs, it's an average of a year and a half after the OECD uh, funds them, the, the average of the OECD. Uh, but if you've got private insurance in Canada, actually the interesting thing is Canada has public health care, but you can also have private drug insurance. And all the government employees have private drug insurance, so they can get it. But the people <laughs> that they're making decisions for, uh, they many of them cannot get it. Um, and so, so Health Canada actually does a very good job of uh, proving things. So companies will only send it to Health Canada uh, about a year after they send it to the United States. And that's because the uh, the Canadian market is only one-tenth as big as the American market. Uh, but then Health Canada does a good job getting it through. If you got, have private insurance, then you can immediately get access to it. Uh, but uh, if you're waiting for the province to pay for it, and many of these drugs are very, very expensive, uh, it uh, it takes way too long. It's far too complex. Uh, and one of the big problems is that the uh, the uh, public payer system for new drugs has made cost the uh, the number one priority rather than making um, uh, access the number one priority. So Canada is different than the UK or Germany uh, or Italy uh, or France or other or the United States and, or other countries uh, where access is a number one priority and then you worry about the cost and what you can do about it. So this is a major battle that uh, we're having. So I'm actually giving a free copy of my book to all the members of parliament in Canada and all the senators and all the uh, Ontario members of provincial uh, legislature uh, to, and I'll, I'll be hopefully meeting with them uh, to drive home this fact that we need to change the priority to one of access. And yeah, everything costs way too much. Uh, but um, but there are things that you can do to tackle the cost once you've got access. And uh, uh, so that and what I argue in the book is that uh, uh, if you really want to bring down costs, the number one thing you have to do is bring down the cost of new drug development, uh, because yes. it was an average oh of, gosh, of yes. um, $4 million to bring a drug to market in the 1960s. Now, in 2013, it was $2.9 billion, and those costs have to be recouped. So and, uh, and, and all those costs are driven by those thousands of speed bumps. Uh, so the same, exactly the same things that will give us faster access to drugs will also bring radically bring down the cost of those uh, of the development of those uh, drugs as well. So if you want if you want to have cheaper drugs, then let's pay attention to where the problem is. Oh my God, that's fascinating! So fascinating. I have one more question um, before we go to the Thriver Rapid Fire and have a little bit of a lighter conversation. One of the things that frustrates me here in the U.S. is we know obesity is linked to 13 different kinds of cancer. Might not cause, but definitely linked. What, what is it? Sorry. Obesity. Obesity. Mm -hmm. We know it's linked. And anytime I say something about this on social media, even when I, I had this great graphic from the CDC, I mean, it wasn't even my graphic, I just get so much hate. And my frustration is, I feel like the body positivity movement, I don't have a problem with it. 
but I do feel like it glosses over the problem that we have with obesity in the US, in Canada, and so many other countries. And so mm -hmm. what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, no, there's, I mean, it's unequivocal that um, uh, obesity, particularly what's called central obesity or, or abdominal obesity, uh, is associated with increased inflammation, and that's increased uh, with diabetes, heart disease, and cancer. Um, and it's also been shown that um, if you do intestinal bypass uh, to get to decrease obesity, that appears to reduce the risk of cancer, and exercise reduces the risk of cancer, and eating smartly reduces the risk of uh, of cancer. Uh, so. So that um, so that it's like it would be the same as if people said uh, uh, that we're mad at you for saying that smoking uh, their smoking was a cause of cancer or they're drinking alcohol because alcohol is a ma another major cause of cancer and uh, even modest intake can increase the risk. Uh, so so these are uh, so it doesn't help to get mad about it. Um, uh, it um, it uh, it's a, just a fact. And anything we can do to tackle obesity uh, is important. It's actually, again, uh, in, in the United States where there's younger people that uh, without adequate access to uh, primary health care, uh, that can have an impact on, on obesity and, um, and diabetes and things like that. Uh, part of the reason that uh, more Americans, uh, a higher proportion of Americans die of di diabetes and heart disease than cancer uh, that, uh, compared to Canada, where, uh, where cancer is by far the leading cause of, of, uh, of death. Um, so, so, uh, so it is very true that obesity is a problem. So, so the things that increase the risk of cancer. So, the number one uh, driving factor in cancer is just getting one day older. Uh, but then, uh, because of all the mutations that occur, just occur because you've just got one day older and all your cells dividing to keep yeah. you alive, they have mutations. But then, anything that increases the risk of those mutations like smoking and um, and uh, alcohol will increase the, the risk of uh, cancer but also anything that increases the number of cell divisions also will so eating too much will obesity does uh, as uh, hormone replacement therapy can uh, so that all the, all these things increase the risk of um, of uh, of cancer uh, but uh, also in my book I say that uh, these are all things that increase the risk of cancer but what my wife really and she's an interior decorator she proofread the book for me and what she really drove drove uh, home was that the fact that uh, yeah we all have to enjoy life again so we can't uh, deprive ourselves of everything so moderation and everything right. uh, moderation and everything is is very 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 important and that reduces your risk but uh, still gives you uh, makes you makes it so you can enjoy life I really appreciate that answer I'm thinking of a breast cancer survivor who she had always been very paranoid she said about everything, toxins, plastic, you name it. She didn't even own a microwave in her house. And she was so paranoid and so restrictive. And then she did get diagnosed with breast cancer. And she realized she did all these things, quote unquote, right. Yeah. And to, to a pretty extreme degree, though. And it didn't prevent her from getting breast cancer, which if I remember correctly, did not run in her family. There was no, um, gen, you know, BRCA gene or anything of that nature. And it changed how she approached things. And she finally started approaching her environment with some degree of moderation. You know, she realized that, you know, you still have to have a life. You still have to enjoy life. Um, so, yeah, so I, I point out in the book that you've got about 37 trillion cells in your body. 
100 billion of them divide every day. There's an average of three mutations per cell division. So every day you've got about 300 billion new mutations. And so the incredible thing is that we all don't uh, get to develop cancer at a very early age. Uh, but we don't because of the whole bunch of defenses that we've got. Uh, but some of those mutations do sneak through. And, um, and so that um, uh, just, no matter how clean your lifestyle, just getting one day older, uh, that's uh, the number one risk factor for developing cancer. Uh, and uh, so, uh, so moderation. So, uh, so I, I like a, a good uh, rare steak from time to time with a, a glass <laughs> of Shiraz. And uh, so I don't do it every day, but I'll do it occasionally. I, I like the occasional hot dog with a nice cold beer. I uh, don't do it every day, but occasionally. So, so, so the, the important thing is moderation. Uh, so if you do it uh, every day, then you can say, well, maybe I caused my cancer by, by doing such and such. But if it's moderation, then probably not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Are you ready for the Thriver Rapid Fire? Sure. All right. Here we go. Beach, desert, or mountains? Mountain. Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Beatles. What is one word that best describes you? Uh, I guess uh, dedicated to what I'm doing. Before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? Uh, I think uh, Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. And the last meal you want to eat? A, a nice a steak with a <laughs> bottle of red wine. <laughs> And the last person or people you want to see? So my, my wife and my kids and my grandchildren. How many grandchildren do you have? Uh, nine grandchildren. Oh, my goodness. How many kids do you have? Uh, well, I've got uh, two, uh, three children and, and, um, and two stepchildren. So I've told them we expect three from each of them. So I want 15 by the end of the day. <laughs> well, you only have six more to go. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We're getting there. What about the last words you will speak? So I always remember that uh, seeing a television program uh, that uh, Dustin Hoffman was going to have inscribed on his uh, on his grave. I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And aside from cancer, you what's one resource you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And please tell people how they can get in touch with you and find your book. So my book, uh, Short Primer and Why Cancer Still Sucks. Uh, so through Amazon, books is the easiest, cheapest way to do it. Uh, or if you go to my website, whycancerstillsucks.com, and it's got a link to a bunch of different uh, uh, stores that, uh, or uh, online places that, uh, that uh, sell it. Um, but um, the, uh, uh, that would be the, the, the major thing. But there's a whole bunch of places out there that have a lot of good information. Great. Well, we will put a link to that in the workshop and the show notes and make sure everybody can see that. Gosh, thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Stewart, and just sharing your expertise. Thank you for finally getting me to get uh, <laughs> headphones <laughs> for the computer. And uh, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to, uh, to talk to you and to um, uh, just discuss these things. Very much appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.